you would turn your Bibles with me, we're going to be at Mark chapter 8. We're continuing for one more week before we look into God's words teaching on the incarnation in preparation for Christmas time. And I think that we, we just read, what we just saw in Psalm 73 was a man who encountered suffering and was basically brought to ask himself, what's the point of suffering? Even more than that, what's the point of worshiping God? The wicked seem to live just as suffering-filled lives and also seem to prosper just as much. It doesn't seem to benefit to live for God, to spend your Sunday mornings here. And he had, came to that conclusion and he almost fell into it until he came to worship God. When he came to worship God, he realizes what the end of the wicked is. He realizes God being in control of every moment. And he realizes something I think that we also need to worship or we need to recognize when we come into God's presence and worship him. Despite suffering tending to cloud our vision and be able to see God's goodness, tend to confuse us about why we are particularly going through suffering. That's a, one of my favorite Psalms. Where we're at in our text is Peter kind of, he's going to encounter suffering of a different kind, but it's also going to distort his vision. Peter has just been given, we've been told in Matthew 16, verse 17, that Peter was given a revelation. He was shown that Jesus is the Christ. And right when as he's had the light of his understanding, the dimmer switch come on, the first thing he sees, he doesn't really like. Let's read, starting at verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. And he began to teach them, after he had said that you are the Christ, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside, and began, and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... 
of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This is God's holy and inerrant word that means without any error in the truth it teaches or even in the words. Let's go and pray to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, I pray that you would make it clear to our understanding now. That you would give us the same spirit that spoke to Peter, that Jesus is the Christ. That you would help convince us that Jesus is not only the Christ, but that he is worth giving up everything for. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Peter has the light of his understanding finally turned on when he can actually see that Jesus is the light of the world who's come into darkness, a land of sin and misery. But the first thing he sees is something that he doesn't really like. And I'm just going to go ahead and start off from the very beginning to say that in the back of your bulletin is an outline with a lot more points than usual because I'm starting with these points earlier than I usually do. Because what Peter is really coming into here is he sees and he's reacting against something that Jesus is plainly teaching. You see, this whole text is about the call to suffer. It's about the call to suffer. And Jesus here, he, throughout the entire New Testament, there's a lot on the suffering of Christ and how the suffering of Christ has accomplished our salvation. It's paid for the sins of all those who trust in him. He uniquely suffered as the son of God and son of man in a way that none of us will ever suffer or are even called to suffer. None of us are, died, are called to die for anyone else's sins. But Jesus here is not really addressing that issue. Mark instead is showing that Jesus' response to Peter is that response to that visceral feeling that Peter had at Jesus' plain teaching that he must suffer. And Jesus takes it this moment to teach us and all his disciples when he calls anyone and everyone that would follow him, that there's a call to suffer on their life. And that first blank there is that the first call to suffer that we see is Jesus Christ. He plainly and clearly teaches, that's the word I think, clearly, he teaches that his call is to suffer. And what Peter's reaction this, to this is, is he does something that I've, I've seen happen before, which is, Someone says something that's a little bit off. In verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus responded to Peter and looking at his disciples, he said, Peter says, you are the Christ. He goes, yes. Do you know what that means? That means that I've come to suffer and die and to rise again from the dead. And Peter 
takes, looks at this call to suffering and he rejects it. He takes him by the side, away from the other disciples, takes him by the hand, just as Jesus had taken the blind man and led him out of the crowds in private to do that healing. Jesus now as was being taken aside by Peter for a rebuke. And this is not a rebuke of anger. This is a rebuke out of love. You see, Peter said to him in Matthew chapter 16 in the parallel text, it's helpful to see that he says, may it never happen to you, Jesus. I don't want you to suffer. The kind of love that Peter's displaying towards Jesus and reacting against the call to suffer, Jesus clearly saying that he is called to suffer, is what every parent feels. Parents, don't you love your children? Isn't the last thing you want to see them go through is suffering and pain? See, Peter's acting like a helicopter parent. He's getting above Jesus and he's looking out to say, hey, listen, I, I see what direction you're heading in and this is not good. I don't want you to suffer. I love you. Or a snowplow parent that gets down in the, in the dirt there and makes sure to push every single obstacle out of their way to make sure that they won't go through any suffering. And the problem there, both for the parent and for Peter here, is not one of motivation. It's not that Peter doesn't love Jesus, he does. It's just like with a snowplow parent though, that often you might have really good motivations, but it tends to have, or really here, it definitely has destructive results. This is not the kind of call to suffering that is one uh, that's avoiding falling into sinful patterns of life and suffering for sinful reasons and bearing the consequences. Yeah, we should care and try to inhibit those types of sufferings. But what Jesus is, what rather Peter is reacting to is Jesus calling and saying that his life is one of suffering. And what he does at this point is he turns aside and sees his disciples and he rebukes them and he says something about that motivation, this call to suffering. He says that to Peter, who had just had revealed from the Father that he is the Christ, he tells him to get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, the same, what Peter's reacting against with the call to suffering what it's, it's the same thing that, that Satan had offered him at the very beginning of his ministry in the wilderness. What was it? Satan said, you don't have to suffer, Jesus. Simply take the route of power and fame. Bend the knee to me and I'll simply give you the kingdoms of this world. That's what he's being called to. But then we get to probably the most beautiful section, at least it seems like right now for the pastor, what's your favorite book that you're reading through? It's the book that I'm currently preaching. And I guess now it's even more myopic than that because 
I was just really struck by the beauty of what he's calling his disciples to. After saying the call to suffering is clearly for him, after Peter rejects that call in his life, Jesus then turns and he says that he calls the crowd to him, starting in verse 34. And with his disciples, to all of them, he takes this opportunity to say to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that's really where I want to spend the bulk bulk of our time focusing on, is that this call to suffer is something that we don't really want to hear, do we? It's not really what we think of when we think of the good news of Christianity. What Jesus does here is he takes Peter's reaction to the fact that Jesus would have to suffer. And Jesus turns to the crowd that have us teaching to say that not only is he called to suffer, but anyone who would come after him will suffer. And the big point of his following speech, what he's aimed at convincing his hearers is, is that not only are they called to suffer, but they're called to suffer, and he's about to show them why it is worth it, why it is so necessary, why it's worthy. It's a worthy calling to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one that we have to come to grips with, especially when we look at all the calls in Scripture to follow Christ. Just one, for example, 2 Timothy chapter 1, what Paul says to Timothy is he says to him, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. This is the calling of the Christian. The calling of the Christian is to suffer. And we need to hear this word from Jesus because we, just like what we want for our children, is the same thing that we actually want for ourselves. We want comfort. We think God loving us means us not having comfort. It means rather us having comfort, him caring for all our needs. And I actually understand and sympathize with Peter's response. Because Jesus has been going out his whole ministry, healing people, relieving suffering from people, taking them out of their darkness of their life and showing them a taste of what the kingdom of God was going to bring on this earth. And that taste is glorious. But what Jesus does here is he shows that this hope for prosperity in our life, this hope for comfort, it's an issue of timing. And we need to learn this issue of timing to make sure that our hearts are not tied to this earth and seeking pleasures here and now, but that our hearts are knit to instead a future investment. In a future day, in a future life, where there will be no more suffering or no more pain, 
That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what he shows in the call to follow him is. That fourth point, and if you're not keeping up with them, you can tell me next time you had too many blanks, Nick. But I'm trying to make sure that you follow the whole course. You can tell me actually how that went. That the call to suffering is definitional to all discipleship. That the call to suffering is definitional to all discipleship. Look at verse 34, that second half. He's talking to his disciples. He's having this private conversation, this private rebuke, and Jesus rebukes him. And I'm so thankful that Mark includes this extra statement that he did not just call to speak this to his disciples, but he speaks this to the entire crowd that's following him, which, as I've said many, many times, it's not surprising. Jesus always has a following around him at all times. He does a lot of private instruction for his disciples, but this is not a time when he gives private instruction. Instead, he turns to the whole crowd, speaking with his disciples. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You see, Jesus does something that's quite amazing here, especially if you listened to or saw a pharmaceutical or maybe a drug commercial recently. What you always have in a drug commercial is a drug that's going to get rid of your depression or is going to do whatever it is to alleviate your suffering. And then it spends the next five minutes speaking at maybe three times speed of all the different problems, all the different side effects that it could potentially have. And, you know, sin actually presents itself in the same exact manner. You see, when the devil tempts us to sin, he tempts us with something that we already want, what we already crave. And what does he do with that temptation? He says, this is going to bring you joy. This is going to bring you happiness. Sex outside of marriage, that's going to make you happy. You want to do it, go for it. There's going to... Well, don't even think about any possible consequences. Live right here. Live for the now. Be present, man. Or drugs. Isn't that the appeal of drugs is that you get to right now experience something? But you know what's never presented in those offers? Or if it is presented, it's presented at three times speed. Is the suffering that goes with those sins. And it's not just with sex and drugs. It applies to all sins, living for yourself, being prideful, seeking to amass as much wealth as you can in this life while putting down others along the way, focusing on how you might be able to get highest promoted in your career to the neglect of your family. All these things promise pleasure and blessing and happiness. And what it doesn't tell you is how temporary that pleasure lasts. It doesn't tell you the consequences and the guilt that's going to be wrought in you. The consequences of missing your family grow up, of not being involved in their life. The consequences of watching movies every night instead of raising your children the nurture and admonition of the Lord, spending time instructing them and just saying, you know what, Sunday morning will be enough for all of that. Now we're just going to live for our entertainment. 
how subtle the lie of sin is. Jesus does not present following him like that. Instead, when he turns to this crowd, he does like the opposite of what people do in evangelistic encounters. When we're telling people the good news of Jesus Christ, we tend to market the good things. That God will make you, give you a sense of completeness. That God will make you happy. That he'll restore your marriage. These are all the list of things that he will do for you. Jesus does the opposite. And he says, slow down, count the cost before following me. And this is something for absolutely everyone. And he makes it definitional by saying, for anyone, all who would come to him. And I think it would be helpful also to pause and say that this is a call to suffer of a particular kind. This is not suffering when it comes to suffering. It's not unique to Christians. And, Paul, and Jesus here is not saying that the call to suffer, to deny oneself and take up its cross and follow me, that's not the suffering that comes from doing what is sinful. 1 Peter chapter 3, right before it gets to the everyone's favorite apologetic section, says, don't suffer for doing what is evil. Instead, suffer for what doing what is good. And he talks about how Jesus being our example in that, of someone who suffered not for unrighteousness sake, he didn't suffer because he committed a sin. Jesus suffered on the cross for righteousness sake. He suffered because, in other words, for doing what is right for choosing to live to honor and please God and not himself. That's why he suffered. And Peter, maybe even remembering this moment, says live for righteousness sake. But even then, he says this, the suffering that's of a particular kind is one that is described by let him deny himself and then the other verb, carry his cross. And really, both of these things speak the same message. Both of these, both of these speak of denying your self-centered concerns, refusing to make your personal desires and self-interest the focus of your life. Think about that image that he gives there of the cross, carrying his cross and following Jesus. Luke adds to that, that Jesus said, pick up your cross daily and follow me. For someone like me who's read the Bible numerous times, I tend to forget the order and sequence of events as they occur in scripture or in different stories. It's really important to note here that Jesus has not said how he's going to die yet. He predicted being rejected by the Jewish leadership and then being murdered, but he did not say how. And he did not even tell the crowds this. The crowds have not heard that he's just predicted his own death. 
they've just been following Jesus. And he turns around and says to them, pick up your cross and follow me. The Jews had seen thousands of crucifixions. Thousands of them. And if it worked as, if, as it did in medieval times, the very point of having so, this sort of execution was to make it a very public affair. Because part of the pain of crucifixion, of torture in that way, was the open shame that it would attract. The crowds that would amass and watch this. So this crowd was very familiar with this sort of event of a crucifixion. And very familiar with what this, what this looked like. You see, a condemned prisoner would, after being beaten, he'd pick up a crossbeam and he would have to carry that piece of wood out to where he was going to be executed. And once he got there, he had his outstretched arms taken to that piece of wood and either nailed to it or tied to it. Both arms were tied to it. Then he was raised up. And that crossbeam was taken to a stake that was already implanted into the ground, and they nailed it to it. What did it mean to pick up your cross? It meant that you are walking the life of a dead man. Jesus is telling this crowd, this is great evangelism strategy, by the way. He's telling this crowd something really winsome. That to follow Jesus means giving up all your self-interest to what extent? To the point of death. That following him is like being a condemned prisoner on the march road to certain death where you will be brutally murdered. Or in the words of Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he appeals to his brothers by the mercies of God's, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Jesus is not messing around here. He says that to be a disciple of Christ means that you are called to suffer. I have a question for you in case any of you have come to Christianity and you haven't heard this before. Has anyone told you this? Has anyone told you that the Christian life is something that's easy, something that's pain-free, that God would, does not want you to suffer any pains or any hardships in this life? No. God has not promised that. You see, we sh the disciples need to figure this out at the very outset. And all of us need to figure this out at the outset. That the follower of Jesus is someone who's following a crucified Savior. If our leader died at the hands of evil men for doing what is right, at the very outset, he makes sure that any follower of him would understand that that's likely to happen to you. You see, even in the drug commercials, when it presents the side effects, all those side effects that reads quickly are potential consequences. They're not necessary. And the same thing's true for Jesus. But what Jesus is preparing his disciples for 
is that all followers of him need to be prepared to follow him to the point of death. And I need to ask you, do you love Jesus that much? Do you see that anything in your life that it's worth giving up voluntarily, that it's worth sacrificing? That's the call of the disciple. Someone who follows Jesus Christ loves him and sees the worth and value of Jesus Christ as being so high, so lofty, seeing his glory, that they're willing to give up anything and everything. And so far in my life, that's not been the case. I've just personally speaking here, I've, I've had to suffer relatively little. But at any moment, I'm not going to be surprised by suffering if at some point I'm put to the test and someone asks, will you stop following Jesus Christ? Will you say he is not Lord or die? As a Christian, we all need to be prepared to accept death at that point. To suffer, yes, the loss of life, but also right now the loss of job. The loss of being able to provide for our families. The loss of respect. The loss of people looking at us and saying, wow, that's a nice guy. We need to be willing to sacrifice anything to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is not a call to suffer because feeling pain is so good. That's not why. Jesus has a particular reason why he's calling his disciples to suffer. He's calling the disciples to suffer because it is ultimately worth it. That fifth point, the call to suffer is worth the cost. Look at this state, this beautiful statement that he starts in verse 35. He says, whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And throughout this section, he uses that word life. And then later on, he talks about the soul. That who, What does it profit the man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Same word here. It's the word spooke. And it's meant here as a double entendre. Jesus is talking both about the external life that we have, but he's also doing a play on words talking about our internal life. Both of these we need to be willing to give up, but one of them, our inner life, our soul, the thing that exists after we die, that we do not, we do not give up. Verse 35, whoever will lose his life, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Jesus' statement here is simply saying that someone who seeks, though, in order to avoid pain and suffering, to avoid self-denial, instead to live for yourself, you might be in that moment, that person is seeking to save their earthly life, save and live for themselves, to live for their own pleasures. And he's promising them that whoever seeks to do that, they end up losing their life. And it's actually this paradoxical reality that those who have given up their life 
to follow after the Lord Jesus Christ have instead, losing this life, they have gained life. You see, the first thing, the call to suffer is worth the cost because it's kind of a trade. We trade the present life for eternal life. Followers of Jesus Christ are willing to give up this life because we are investing in the future. We can trade the present life for life in the world to come. And he goes on and says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Here he's shifting in this double entendre to focus on the inner man. Obviously, the person who lost their life hasn't gained a physical life in the present. He's given that up. But what he's gained instead and what he gets to hang on to is his soul. In Mark chapter 10, he's going to give an example of this, a man like this. Remember the story of the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus Christ and he says, I've kept all of God's commands. I have my soul. And Jesus, by looking at the Ten Commandments, shows that he is not a good person. And in fact, he shows that he's broken the very first command to have God as number one in his life. And he shows this by posing a question to him in verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Notice he says this out of love. Loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. What was the rich man's response? Disheartened by the saying that Jesus said, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. C.S. Lewis actually gives a fair warning when it comes to riches, which I think actually applies to everyone in this room, at least in comparison to others. C.S. Lewis says, and he's, this is from the screw tape letters. He's speaking right now as a demon trying to think about how do we get men to lose their souls. And he says this, despite, the, despite your contrary opinion, it, when a man goes to war, you're hoping for the same thing that his good mother is and his, uh, his spouse is. You're praying that the man survives. And he says this because long life and prosperity knits man to this world. He feels that he's finding his place in it while he's really, while it, this world, is really finding its place in him. His increasing reputation, his widening circle of acquaintances, his self, his sense of self-importance and growing pressure to be absorbing in his work that is agreeable to him. That this builds in him a sense of being really at home in this world, which is just what we really want as demons. 
See, the reality is, is God built in the sense of our hearts that this world is not our home. We have some semblance of the knowledge of God, but you know what time and prosperity tends to do? Jesus calls us to give up everything, to follow him, be willing to drop it all and follow him. And the more we have, the reality is this, the harder it is. We find ourselves being knit to this world, knit by its comforts, knit by all the pleasures that it offers us, buying into the lies that it tells us that we can make this world our home, that we can maybe through science, through some social programming, maybe even eliminate suffering in this world. The reality is, is when Jesus calls us to die to ourselves and have a life called uh, the call to suffering for his sake, everyone who lives in this world is called to suffer. Everyone in this world is going to experiencing, is going to experience suffering and pain. The reality is, is, is your suffering going to mean anything? Is your suffering going to be done out of for righteousness' sake? out of service to God, 